everybody. So excited to be back in the studio today. Stand firm with Eden, of course. Very excited. I am bringing you guys a guest speaker today who um, is actually one of my professors. His name is Dr. Bill. Super excited to have him on today. I'm going to have him introduce himself. We're going to go into some topics that I think you guys are really going to enjoy. And I think a lot of people really have a lot of questions on. So we're here to answer them for you. Dr. Bills. Yeah, my name is Kyle Bills. I am a neuroscientist and a professor, um, the Dean of Research at the Nordic College of Osteopathic Medicine, and very excited to be here with you. I am so excited. I think the brain is so fascinating, and so you were the first person that I thought of when I wanted to talk about the brain stuff. So a couple things I wanted to go into today. I just wanted to start off with something that I have been thinking about for a while, ever since it came out. What is your take on Neuralink? Oh, on Neuralink. I know that's kind of out there, but I, I have heard so many speculations and I want to know from somebody who knows the brain, what you think of it and what are the repercussions in the future? Well, you know, boy, this is a fascinating topic because the rate at which our ability, you know, the computational power with artificial intelligence is, is just exponentially growing. And Mm -hmm. in the next three to five years, it is conceivable that, um, we will only need about a quarter of the information in order to repopulate 75% of reality. Um, that's kind of the, the rate at which we're moving with computational power. Um, and so that, I mean, that has just unbelievable implications, dangerous implications, but exciting implications. That's wild. And so we, we're, we're hitting the point when you watch some of these, these announcements coming from companies like NVIDIA, uh, from Neuralink, from Apple, where the, the computing power is such that if, if we can gather in just like a third of, of information about an environment, the computers are, are becoming capable of interpolating and extrapolating and filling in the rest of reality for somebody. And so as we start to contemplate this idea that we can be creating these machine human interfaces, yeah. I mean, just, just thinking about that fact alone, you think, oh my goodness, um, what type of power will this have on the way that we perceive everything that's going on around us, the interactions we have. And so, boy, it it has some implications that are a little bit scary. Well, if you have a chip in your brain and that gets implanted, isn't some, can somebody else theoretically have the power to control what you're thinking or what you're perceiving? If that's going to change your reality 75% of the time? Well, that's a, that's another massive topic because anytime you, from an artificial intelligence or a machine learning standpoint, you know, we, we go through and we, we create large data sets and then you train these models and there's huge amounts of discussion. In fact, even just from some of the announcements from the federal government over the last while, um, there are huge pushes for deciding the morality of how we're going to train these models oh, from an wow. equity standpoint. Um, and boy, the implications of that are that we're going to have individuals that will get to decide how these models will think. And so as they become more integrated into the society around us, it is always worth considering who trained this model. Yeah. What were the motivations behind this model? How did they do it? And I think these are topics people already notice as they interact with large language models like ChatGPT. Um, and as those, you know, now we have Llama 2 that Mark Zuckerberg uh, open sourced to the world that was what trained that? about. Oh, so Llama 2 is a, is a large language model akin to ChatGPT, okay. but it was trained to about 80% of its capacity mm-hmm. um, and then placed out in the world so that anybody can download the model. Um, it is open source. Mm-hmm. It is commercializable. 
And then you can take that model and train it the rest of the way to customize it to whatever it is that you're doing. Is this just so that you have like a friend to talk to? Like what's the point of it? Well, for example, if, let's say a, a, a corporation wanted to have a chat GPT-like interface for their organization, but that wasn't connected to the internet. Um, you can firewall off this large language model, train it on your internal environment, and then this becomes kind of your um, personal steward to help you accomplish tasks within some firewalled environment. That's crazy. Um, and so that those models are out there. They're ready to go. Okay. Um, and so, but how you refine the process of that last bit of training greatly dictates what it's going to come back with and how it's going to guide the strategic movement within any group of individuals. Because um, I'm sure anybody that's used ChatGPT, you realize really quickly that most people just kind of, even though they know it's not perfect, yeah, they work as if it were perfect. Yes, 100%. You, you just move along as if it gave you some correct answer because it's, it's facilitating your workflow so effectively. That's crazy. And I know that they just had a conversation, Elon, and I don't know who else he met with, but they kind of met because they felt that the AI was moving too fast. And they were like, hey, we need to kind of slow down and see what's happening. Do you agree that it's moving too fast? If you had the opportunity to get Neuralink in your head, would you do it? Uh, no, I would not be interested in uh, placing Neuralink in my head, no. Okay. Um, <laughs> Coming from a neuroscientist, that's good to know. Yeah, that, that's not something that I personally would be particularly excited about. Um, you know, especially given some of the motivations of, of some of the large players, I think, in this field. Um, you know, there, there, there are some of these infamous conversations that, that we read about where the heads of some of these larger companies, uh, they begin to have fallouts because some consider the advent of artificial intelligence to be on par with the value of a human life. Yes. And, you know, we're... we're that's a sketchy place to be when, when we look at it from that perspective and you think, well, you know, these, these corporations that are, that are rapidly advancing this stuff, I'm not convinced that their motivations necessarily are lining up with the ones that I would have. Yeah, because it's, are they in there for, obviously you're not going to create a business if there's no financial incentive to do so. However, how is this going to benefit humanity? That's, I think, the big question. And will it benefit it in a way that it's going to make you kind of numb to every experience? You know, I don't. I don't know. So I'm, I'm glad to have that insight because I feel like this is also new to everybody. And with somebody who's educated, I think is going to have a lot more insight into the deeper questions than somebody like me. And half the things that you just mentioned, I didn't totally think about. So I'm glad to get your insight on that. So thank you. Oh, yeah. So kind of moving along with some of the technology a little bit. I know that there's because this is kind of a hypothetical question. I don't know. I know there's research out now where you can put this thing on your head I don't know what it is and you actually can like get a mouse to move so is there potential do you think in the future for us to communicate like ESP kind of or like telepathically communicate with one another oh certainly uh, that's actually far more realistic currently than than you might imagine really oh yeah so um, let's say for example we, we we can read brain activity currently as individuals are are engaging in different activities like you said moving a mouse or mm -hmm. Uh, moving an arm, you know, the, and, and so we've mapped pretty well the, the, the brain regions that are responsible for um, everything down to the to kind of directionality of a movement. And so as, as those signals come in, um, these artificial intelligence and deep learning models are capable now of, of building out 
the meaning behind electrical signals that we might read, for example, with an EEG, mm-hmm. um, and then reproducing what those look like and, and, and just simply translating them into the next interface that would go down into, for example, a prosthetic arm yeah. that, that we might try to move. So though that technology is currently in existence. So we could communicate, like have a conversation without speaking. Well, what's interesting is, you know, we're, we're, we're the, the next phase will be, um, for example, let's say we could read your, your brain activity as you had, had thoughts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could currently translate that into words that I could read without you speaking. Really? Um, but if the idea then is, well, can we transmit that over and then instantly put that into my brain? Yeah. Perhaps we're, we're on the advent of, of those types of things. Um, but th- these are not unrealistic 50 years down the road types of problems. That's so cool to me. I just love that. I mean, it is, I guess, kind of dangerous territory because then your mind's like the only thing that you can control and is private to you. So what happens when you unlock the ability to get into everybody's head? I guess that's also a fear. I don't know if that's conspiracy or whatever, but. Well, one of the challenges, right, is always, um, you know, we can read impulses, but, but it's so complex in the human mind that context, I think, will be the larger, the larger problem. Okay. Because contextualizing what someone's experiencing before a thought process occurs, that we're not, that, that's got a little ways to go. Okay. And I like that you mentioned that because going, you know, talking about experiences, I wanted to touch on that as well, moving into more of the emotional side of things. What's kind of happening when somebody has an experience and can two people have the same experience and process it differently? And if somebody does have a bad experience, how is that affecting them down the road? I think we always we always think of feelings as something that isn't scientific as much, but I know that there is an extent of that present with different neurons firing, and I just kind of want to dive into how people feel and what that actually translates to in terms of brain activity and different consequences. Yeah, okay, so super complex question. Yeah, sorry, um, I know that was get, kind of a lot. Getting into those, but so I guess uh, caveat an explanation with, um, this will be a pretty superficial explanation of, okay. of maybe how some of these work, but um, okay. So maybe let's start with with something called the mesolimbic circuitry. Okay. Okay. So th- this is the part of the brain that is responsible for changing the the way that we would predict outcomes within our environment. Okay. So we we might call this a center of learning, a center of change, and this is a dopamine circuit. Now. One quick mis, um, kind of misnomer a little bit, or, or at least a misconception about dopamine is that it's not just a feel-good neurotransmitter. Yes. Um, dopamine gets released, um, let's say you were to just walk over and slap me right in the mouth. <laughs> that, not that you would do this, Yeah. but I would get a dopamine release because dopamine is released in this circuit um, when something novel or salient occurs. Which means yeah, that mean? something that is unpredicted or unexpected, so novel, or something that's salient, something that's potent, okay. a particularly intense experience. Does there have to be emotion associated with that? Is that what you would consider novel or salient, that there's a, a feeling associated with it? Well, the feelings are going to come in from, from, a, from uh, they're going to be contextualized by other brain regions. Okay. But the, the dopamine is a, uh, amongst other things, it's a prediction circuit. Okay. And so... Anytime we walk into some environment, we make predictions about what we think are going to occur. 
And if we've made a prediction error and something unanticipated occurs, then the brain has this mechanism to say, hey, wait a minute, you, based upon your previous experiences, you did not anticipate correctly. And so dopamine gets released. And that is this cue for us to then take in all of the stimuli that are going on around us so that we can try to lock in some new predictive pattern so that okay. the next time we, we encounter a situation, we make a better prediction. Um, it's, it's really, when, when in, in neuroscience, we talk about bias, for example, that has a bit of a different context than the way it's used generally in the world. I mean, that has a negative connotation when we say the word bias, generally speaking, kind of socially. Um, but from a strict brain standpoint, uh, bias is the way that our brain works. It's the reason it didn't take you three hours to decide what to eat this morning. Yeah. Uh, simply because we've we've had experiences, we've, we've locked in routines. Okay. And so we would call those biases. And every time that, that circuit will fire, it helps us to... Um, make another judgment about what's likely to happen in any given situation. Mm -hmm. And so in the moments that we have these novel salient experiences, everything that's around us is going to get locked in. So weird example. Let's go back to you slapping me for just a minute here. Yeah. Right? We'll kind of dig on this for a minute. Okay, so in, the, in this weird scenario where we're sitting here pleasantly, mm -hmm. um, we know each other, and I make predictions that you're a perfectly pleasant, wonderful person. Because I've had experiences that would, would, for me, say that, oh, this is true. I see. And so if you were to stand up and come over and just wallop me good. Yeah. Then what would happen is I, I, my brain says, whoa, wait a minute, time out. You made a serious judgment error on this situation. And so all of the different things that are happening right now, the fact that there's a camera pointed at us, yes. a microphone that's kind of close to my face, we've got lights, we've got all of this context of the, all the things that have happened to me previously in this day. All of those things are sensory inputs that are coming into my brain in regions around this circuit. Okay, I, okay, I understand what you're saying. Okay, so all of those contexts are going to be locked into the slap. Mm -hmm. And so maybe, maybe two years from now, I'm sitting in a room that, that maybe has some lights that are just kind of pointed towards me, or maybe I'm speaking into a microphone and my heart rate increases. And I start to feel uncomfortable and somebody notices and they say, Hey, are you all right? And I go, mm, what's wrong? And I say, I don't know. I just, I just want to get out of here. I'm, I don't feel comfortable. And, and I flee, right? I, I engage in some escape behavior and maybe I don't even realize what it is exactly that has elicited this response. But now in a, in a circuit that's close to this mesolimbic circuit, right? I've got my hippocampus, which is where I'm storing memory. Yes. And I've got my amygdala, which is where I'm going to assign and store some emotional context to these experiences that I've had. And so now two years from now in this hypothetical environment, um, I've made a prediction that says you should feel anxious and flee. Wow. And it doesn't make it so. Yeah. It doesn't mean there's actually danger. It simply means that I have now been conditioned into a bias that has predicted that it's best to escape and that I should feel uncomfortable and anxious. That's crazy. Is there a timeline that we see that fade, that response fade, or is it just kind of always going to be there because you had that experience? Yeah, those things can be reinforced. They can be de-reinforced. Okay. But it, it would seem from the literature that it, it takes about 10, now this won't be exact, but about 10 positive predictions that come true to one 
negative bad experience that comes that 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 we've 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 miscalculated and and so you can wash out um some some positive Mm -hmm. reinforcement really quite quickly 10 to 1 ratio it seems and i had actually heard that same ratio when it comes to convincing somebody to change their mind about something i had heard that it takes 10 times the amount of information to convince someone that their point is wrong after they've already you know previously decided this is what I believe. So that's so interesting. So I want to bring up a hypothetical with this exact type of scenario because I'm curious and I think a lot of people can relate to this. Let's say there is a couple and they go through a breakup. Mm -hmm. Let's say the girl, the reason that they break up is because the girl gets cheated on. Moving forward, we hear this all the time. Girls say, I have trust issues, right? And so she engages in new dates she maybe gets a new boyfriend whatever but on all of these dates she consistently mentions oh you know well i have trust issues i can't help that because of what happened to me one is that an example of what you're saying and two how do you deal with that because i think i hear conversations in each year all the time about one side who says okay well it's not all of these new guys' problem to deal with this girl's issues, she just needs to get over it. Mm. And then you have another group of people who say, okay, well, these new men need to cater to her because she's been through a traumatic experience and that's not her fault. That's just now a part of who she is and there's there's nothing that she can really do about that. So, yeah, so I guess what is your take on if that's the same type of scenario and how would you go about resolving something like that. Cause I think that is super, super common. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, per- perhaps maybe we'll look at it just from a, a neurocircuitry standpoint for, yeah. for just a second, because you know, some of the questions of whose issue is it to deal with? Well, I suppose it depends. Yes. <laughs> um, but I mean, so, so these circuits, when we say, I mean, maybe, maybe we'll call that a, a, a mild tangential form of post-traumatic stress, right? Okay. Where, some some experience has taken and that's not diagnostically correct necessarily but yeah, yeah. but maybe just contextually that that will help with maybe this description is okay so that's an experience that's happened it was particularly potent you know someone gets cheated on and so this is a this is an unexpected and very potent experience yes and so this is going to encode all kinds of things within the brain because one will then say okay that outcome no good don't want that to occur again. And so the predictions are, are going to now be that this individual will see that dangerous behavior in places all over because it's better then to hedge up against it than to let something get through that's going to hurt you again. So right? that's a normal, res- is that a normal reasonable of course response? It is. Okay. It's, okay. It's, it, the brain is designed to do this, okay. but that doesn't mean that it's healthy and normal. Um, because part of, so there's another player in this, in, in this circuit, right? There is a place called the, the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. Okay. Uh, specifically the left dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. Okay. So this is the part of the frontal lobe that is going to be kind of the, the, the conscious part where we can make some decisions, but it integrates very cleanly within this circuit and it has an inhibitory ability. To where if some experience is coming upon us, it can slow it down, gate it, have an inhibitory effect on the on the speed of the circuit as it's coming. And that's conscious. 
it's conscious. So this is the part of the brain that, okay, let's use this hypothetical individual that you described. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's say they are lying in bed at night Mm -hmm. and they've already been hurt and they've met someone. Okay, so they they lay in bed and, and they have a conversation and maybe they go on a fifth date. And on that fifth date, they look over and see this new person they're dating and they think for just a moment they caught them looking Yes. At someone who's serving the table. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now the date's over and they go home. And they're laying there in bed and they can't sleep because they are just thinking about this and replaying this thing in yes. their mind over and over and over again. Yeah. Hopefully this isn't hitting too close to home is where for any <laughs> anybody listening, right? Um, okay, so that that left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, that's the part of the brain that can create Uh, fake and future selves and past selves. Whoa. So in other words, um, one can lay there at night. And and I think everybody's had the experience of kind of this um, when you're, when you're half awake and you get really irrational and your mind goes into all kinds of places that when you wake up in the morning, you go, what? Like that? Yeah. Why did I ever, why was I even thinking about that? Right. Okay. So that's this, this iteration of, of, of future straw selves. That's that part of the brain. Okay. And it's a pretty unique, amazing thing that's been built into our minds. This ability to play out possible scenarios and check for danger, check for joy, and and live out experiences while we're laying in bed. Like that's a phenomenal, unbelievable yeah, that thing that we can do. Um, and so this this hypothetical person's laying there and in, in 20 minutes of laying in bed, they're either um, happily in a relationship, married, they've had children and now grandchildren and they're dying happy, or they're completely on their own, dead, lying in a gutter, and everything's ruined and nobody loves me and why would anybody ever love me? Right? That is so accurate. So these two things can play out and we can live a lifetime in 20 minutes lying in our own bed. And every time we iterate these things, the context in which we create possible futures, we're drawing from this hippocampus, the amygdala, the experiences we've had. And so that oh. is the lens through which we're iterating these possible futures and going through this. So someone, like someone, two people could have different scenarios that they're hypothesizing based on their previous experiences. 100%. Ooh. But the beautiful part of this part of the brain is that it does have the ability to override that. I understand. And you could iterate in a different direction consciously, but one would tend to default based upon experiences they've had. And if you, if you simply lie there and allow it to happen, it's going to go according to the context of your previous experiences, generally speaking. Okay. So you're saying somebody hypothetically has both of those scenarios, the one where you're married and the one where you're just like totally alone. The person who may have had a previous healthy relationship that ended for amicable reasons, they're more likely to hypothesize that that person looking at the waitress, it was just happenstance and you're hypothesizing more likely the future being married versus the person that got hurt. Now, these are pretty broad generalizations, but, but yeah, based on previous experiences, we're, we're, our minds will, you know, we'll, we'll iterate future selves based upon previous experiences. We draw them from those other brain regions. So how do you fix that? Mm. 
now here here we here we go right here's yeah. the well there's there now we're now we get into to a lot of a lot of theories but maybe let's stick to the circuitry for just a minute um and and i'll throw out all the appropriate caveats right of of it depends okay <laughs> so with all the caveats of anything i might say couldn't couldn't necessarily be be perfectly applied to any given situation so um with that context we'll throw that out there yeah. safe safe place to start understandable um so um Let's look at it from maybe a cognitive behavioral therapy standpoint in in the way that one one might approach that. Um, Okay, so um, we might might look at any given situation and in one of the paradigms you'd say, okay, situation arises. Um, Hypothetical, let's give names to these people. It'll be easier to do it. Who's who's the one lying in bed? Let's do Susan. Okay, Susan's lying in bed. Susan was hurt. Susan is now dating... Let's do Jack. Okay, Susan and Jack. Okay, so Susan's Susan's the, the situation for Susan is that she watches Jack look over and she thinks she catches Jack um, checking out a waitress. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so one of the the misnomer, one, 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 another misconception about the brain is that when a situation arises, that that elicits some emotional response. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very seamless experience for us as humans that that's the way that that occurs, but there's much more to it. In other words, a situation alone isn't the 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 thing that elicits the the emotion. Oh. Because all these other brain regions are involved, right? Okay. The perception itself, the sensory perception of a situation, and this seems obvious when we say it like this, um, is neutral. They're just data points that are coming in. Okay. And and until those those data points are aggregated run through all of the different circuitry. I mean, all kinds of different places from, um, you'll remember lectures on the basal ganglia yeah. and, and a variety of different, different brain regions that are providing context and, and it goes through loops and it, and it applies these things. Okay. So all of that has to occur and you're going to need a little bit of prefrontal cortex input. So some conscious things, all of this has to occur. And so from a psychological perspective, CBT paradigm, we might say, well, there, there needs to be some automatic thought that will occur within the brain in order to elicit this emotional response that occurs. Yeah. And the automatic thought, there's generally a very superficial version of that that we might notice, like something that, that along the lines of, um, well, he, he might hurt me again. Mm. Or at least I might get hurt again. Yeah. But if you were to dig in deeply, the baggage behind that thought the real automatic thought is, I'm not good enough. Yeah. Um, he thinks I'm ugly. Yeah. I'll never be good enough. In fact, why would anybody ever love me? I'll never get to the end of a relationship where it ends up in marriage, which is what, you know, this hypo- we'll say this is what this hypothetical person is seeking, and I'll die alone, right? Now, th- those aren't the things that, that maybe in the moment are the, the exact thoughts, but that's the baggage that's that underlies the, the thought, yeah. right? And 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 so we don't we don't really ever like to think about that. Mm-mm. But that's a pretty critical piece. Okay. To understanding, okay, how have I been biased in in my life that is now negatively affecting my interactions and my emotions and my interpretation of reality? Do you think that, that's hard because people have a hard time taking accountability for how they feel about themselves? Oh yes. That's a, that's, I mean, digging into one's automatic thoughts is a particularly painful process Yeah. to, to understand 
because it doesn't matter who we are. It exposes the fact that we're not perfect. Absolutely. And that we're pretty darn far from perfect. And it is a, a cleansing, beautiful process, but it hurts to be exposed. Yeah. And to be willing to take those first steps to even do that. So it's like, let's say you uncover the fact that you feel some type of way about yourself. How do you go about changing those thoughts that you have about yourself of, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable, like whatever it may be. Yeah. Okay. So if we, uh, let's, let's take it one, one layer above automatic thought then. Okay. So let's say we identify, you know, this, this irrational automatic thought, Mm -hmm. which is, you see someone look over at, 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 at a server mm-hmm. and then I'm going to die alone. Nobody loves me. Okay, well, that's a pretty irrational jump, right? Yes. But it doesn't mean it's not real. It doesn't mean that it's not present in our minds. Okay, so now we, we take it there and you think, well, wait a minute. What in the world, why would I jump to that conclusion? Okay, so now here's the next big challenge. If, if I were to go to Susan, our hypothetical Susan, yes. and I were to tell her, the irrational thoughts I had if I were in the exact same situation Susan was in and I were to say, this is what I'm thinking and feeling, Susan would probably give me a very rational answer about how I should feel and what I should do. Yes. Yes, right? yes, she totally would. And she I would. know this because women do this all the time to each other. Yeah. We're like the best therapists for each other. <laughs> 100%. And it's very easy to clearly see this in another person. And it's very difficult to apply the same grace that we would apply to another person to ourselves. Why do you think that is? Because I have never been able to figure that out. Okay, so let's take it now from that automatic thought. Let's go up a tier and we'll say automatic thoughts are going to come through the context of some core belief. Okay. And and the the trouble with, with these core beliefs is that there's not just core beliefs. There's often contradictory competing core beliefs. So maybe, maybe let's look at this from a, um, a religious standpoint for just a moment, a spiritual okay. standpoint for just a second. Um, if I were to sit with, with Susan and, and say, okay, Susan, um, tell me what gives a person their worth? And maybe you can straw man Susan for us for just a minute. Pret- pretend to be Susan. Yeah, that's a great question. And that's, I feel like that's so hard. I, I think a lot of self-worth comes from like recognizing your value and knowing what you have to offer, that you are a competent individual, that you are doing the things that you need to do to be like your best self. And I think that's, I feel like is how I see my worth, knowing that I have a lot to offer and that I want to receive like the same love that I'm able to give. Okay. So what if you're not that competent? Do you still have worth? Yes. And I think if you don't feel competent in yourself, I personally see it, especially in times of struggle. If I am like, oh, maybe I didn't do good on a test or I disappointed my parents or something. I do think that the first thing I turn to is I'm like, okay, well, at least I know that God loves me. At least I know that I have worth in his eyes because it's very easy to feel as though the people in your life don't see your worth when you've disappointed them or when you've done things that don't align with the person that they see you to be. And I think that alone can make you feel worthless. So feeling competent and being independent on your own two feet is, I think, a really important thing 
to be able to do so that you have your own solid sense of self-worth and not finding it in others. But in times of struggle, I feel like you can definitely lose your own sense of self-worth and that's when you rely on a higher power. Okay. So there's, there's one of the challenges, right? Of, of a paradigm of self-worth, because if it, if it's based upon one's own self-competence, mm-hmm. well, competence by, by default must have an external component to it. Competent compared to what? Ooh. So that, that, that gets a little bit dicey, right? But then you, you took it back and said, okay, well, and, and maybe I'll replace a word when all else fails, Mm-hmm. because I don't think it, I mean, it, it does eventually for everyone, right? Absolutely. Then your worth, you said, comes from God. Yes. Okay, so we're, you're, we're, we're you, you, you're Susan, we'll, we'll, we'll keep calling you Susan yeah, yeah. for just a minute. Okay, so, all right, so ultimately your worth is derived from your relationship with God. Yes. Okay. All right, so then let me take this to, to, to another another step here. What makes a good person? I think that is so subjective because... But be subjective for you, Susan. Okay, so (laughs) I think that a good person has a strong moral foundation because I think that's critical so that you know how to treat other people and where your limits are for being engaged in a society. So I think having a strong moral compass, knowing that you know, you have a purpose here and that you have a sense of worth. Um, and this is so cheesy, but the golden rule of treating other people, how you would like to be treated. I think that that makes a good person. And the reason I mentioned like competency is because you want to contribute somehow, whether that's to other people in society, whether it's your family. Um, I think that that's really important that you're being productive. Cause I think that you're on this earth for a reason, so I and, think that those things make a good person. And what's the reason? What's the purpose? And I guess this, again, is subjective. But for me personally, my purpose is to do the most that I can here to serve other people, help other people in terms of making the biggest impact I can, as well as being a woman personally, to also have a family and be able to carry on like my generation down the road because at the end of the day I would hope that there is something more after this and that I'm doing my best to prove my worthiness to get there okay all right so what would dictate your worthiness to get there that's a very difficult question especially as because I've just created the whole Susan and that's that's totally me now and I'm a very transparent person about everything in my life I think that is a question I can't answer because I used to know for sure and now I don't because I feel like my religious beliefs have changed a lot over the years and that was essentially what I derived all of my worth from in a very specific pattern and now I feel like it's changed and I I don't know. So that would be now whatever that is, right? That, yeah. that we're 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 trying to define and, and kind of put our finger on top of is our, our core beliefs. Yes. Right. And generally speaking, those are the beliefs that if I came to Susan and and described the same problem she's experiencing, she would comfort me and 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 she would she would say those things, right? But then, okay, so um, throwing up maybe some of the things we said. Okay, um, it's 
my my worth is derived from my relationship to God. Mm-hmm. It's inherent. Yes. It's unchanging. Yes. In, in that sense, right? And that's why it's comforting. Comforting. And then we, we would say, well, my, my purpose then is to help others, to lift others, mm-hmm. to serve others, to do good, right? Yes. Okay, so um, now the situation with, what did we say his name was, Jack? Yeah. Jack, okay. With Jack... Um, that situation hasn't affected any of those core beliefs. No, it, no, it hasn't. So that means Susan must have competing core beliefs that don't fall within that paradigm. Or else she wouldn't be so distraught. Or else she wouldn't be so distraught. In other words, my worth is dependent on what Jack thinks of me. Yes. My worth is dependent on how I'm viewed by other people. My worth is dependent on whether I'm in a relationship. My worth is dependent on whether I'm attractive enough to hold his gaze when an attractive server walks by. But what if your worth is still founded in those core beliefs? And can it still just maybe like hurt your feelings? Or is it truly just deep down there is that insecurity and that really is what is causing that mental like distress now i mean that's a it's a it's a great question because the the point of the of of the entire description is not that that we're good at this okay yeah fair point right because nobody is yes everybody has this cognitive dissonance that takes place in their life like this nobody's immune from it so lest we lest we give the impression that it's either do it perfectly or your toast let's just dispel that right now because that's not that's not the game we're playing Okay. Because none of us can do that very well, and that's kind of irrelevant, actually. Okay. But the recognition that I hold beliefs, so maybe maybe I'll throw one up for me for a minute, mm-hmm. since you were kind enough to, <laughs> to, to maybe dive in. I, I would say that my worth is dependent on my relationship as a son of God. Uh-huh. And for me personally, I would say, well, it's dependent on the fact that I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes. Critical for me. Yes. And for again, me personally, um, I have made promises and covenants with Jesus Christ. Yes. And and my core beliefs would say that that set me free. I understand. And that 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 Jesus Christ will will deal with all of the messes that I create. Does that help you mitigate the messes that you feel like come into your life? Oh, entirely. In fact, it's a critical piece for me. Yes. Because otherwise, um, for me, mm-hmm. then my worth is dependent on my competence. Yes. And my ability to perform. Yeah. And how I'm perceived by all the people around me. Yeah. And a variety of factors that are so far out of my control that I would be prone to generalized anxiety and depression all the time. Because I can tell myself in the mirror how great I am every day. Yeah. But it's only a matter of time before I look deeply in the mirror and that crashes against the rocks because none of us are that good. Yeah. There's going to be a point where you stumble. Mantras only take you so far. Yeah. Mantras can get you out of bed in the morning. But if you really want to get introspective or if you get in a serious relationship with someone with whom you can contend, and, and I mean that in a good way you become exposed Mm -hmm. and it becomes quite obvious how far we have to go to become a better person. Yes. And 
if my paradigm is simply repeating to myself every morning how wonderful I am, I'm creating something that's false because it's not necessarily so, but my paradigm would be this is a process of me becoming something better. And for me, again, the, the weight of the consequences of my own stupidity are being held in check by a wonderful, amazing Savior yeah. who's given me the space that I need to smack against the walls while I figure this, this ridiculous life of mine out. Yes. And, and I recognize, oh, that was ridiculous. Yeah. Don't do that. But all of the, the consequence, um, and again, we, we can't take any of these given things so far, right? Because there, there are consequences that, depending on our actions, will stay with us. Um, and we'll we'll have to contend with them, but but the hope and the peace that in the end all will be made right is a critical paradigm for me. Absolutely. To be able to to look in the mirror, recognize how wildly imperfect I am, mm-hmm. but then at the same time, because of the binding nature of a relationship with God, I can say, oh, I can be imperfect and I can be clean. Yes. I can be worthy and I can be very imperfect. Do you feel like that gives almost like a weight off your shoulders? Because I feel like that does for me too, especially in times of like when, because I've totally in this, because I'm in my second year, I remember I failed an exam last year and I had to retake a test. I'm not perfect. And I was distraught. Like I remember fleeting, fleeting thoughts of like, I don't even want to be here anymore. Like I am such a disappointment to my family. Like I'm so upset. I remember bawling for hours. And then I just, I remember kind of like taking a step back and I just kind of had to like have an honest conversation with myself. And I just remember thinking, how did I feel like this? Like, how did I let these numbers affect how I feel about like my worth as an individual? And I really had to kind of be like, wow. I kind of let myself go there because my worth is not defined by like numbers. God loves me no matter what. And even let alone that, I know my parents still love me. And I think that's something that so many of us struggle with is letting these things just come crashing down into you. So kind of like you were saying with the core beliefs, do you feel it's the ability to kind of step back and recognize that those are not defining you because of the core beliefs that you do hold that your worth is in something higher. Oh, a hundred percent. And, and see, this is, this is the, one of the most painful and beautiful experiences, right? Is, is, you know, there, there's, there's a term that, that some people love, some people hate called repentance. Yes. And maybe a different way to look at that is the process of rooting out competing core beliefs. Mm-hmm. And so we're faced with these situations like, Hopefully it wasn't neuro. <laughs> no, it was uh, not. Okay, good. <laughs> it was one of the classes that everyone thinks should be easy and we have it for the entire year. So now I think you know what class okay, it is. Okay, fair but. enough, fair enough. <laughs> um, but okay, so we're, we're, we're faced with these situations, right? Where what, what ends up happening is these competing core beliefs that are often so incongruent with our core beliefs. Mm-hmm. Like they're in direct opposition to our core beliefs. Yes. And then this situation arises that elicits this, this breakdown and, and it exposes to ourselves and everyone around us that we have cognitive dissonance, that I have these core beliefs that I've espoused and I would tell someone else to give them comfort. And then in my own mind, I have a list of completely contradictory beliefs 
through which automatic thoughts are coming into my mind and I'm applying to myself. And the tension that's created between these competing core beliefs and these tightly, beautifully held core beliefs, that, that dissonance is one of the most common sources of anxiety that we feel, disquiet that we feel. Wow. And they, 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 they break down faith. Yes. And when we say things that we, we bring a word like repentance into this, you know, that that's not a dirty word. And it's not just about some horrific thing from a religious context, like I shoplifted yeah. or I shot someone, right? Um, or I, I embezzled or, okay. right? It's, it's the process. If you, if you go back to the, to the root of these words, and their root structure implies a change of mind, yeah. a change in the way we see the world, a change yeah. in the very essence of the way we breathe. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're working with God mm-hmm. to change and root out these, these false competing core beliefs that don't align with those things that we hold so dear. Yes. And, and with that, we can truly embrace faith. Yeah. And we can embrace hope and peace, but it is a painful process sometimes. Oh, absolutely. And and many of us, we, we would prefer simply to live in dissonance. And, and then eventually what happens is, because it's difficult to root out core beliefs, you'll find a, a, a large subset that will say, well, I'll just give up my core beliefs because then I'm not, I'm not bound to anything. Yes. And, and people will find temporary peace that way. Mm-hmm. You'll find it all the time where somebody says, well, I just, you know, I, I mean, a great example. Someone says, I just feel judged everywhere I go. I just constantly feel judged everywhere. I just am being judged. Yeah. And I can't hold up to these standards and I can't be perfect. And so it's too much. This can't be right. And so one of the two things must be abandoned in order to decrease cognitive dissonance. And so if one abandons either one, there will be at least a temporary sense of relief. I understand what you're saying. Because we've we've eliminated some of the root of the cognitive dissonance. The trouble is, the moment you eliminate a core belief that is providing purpose, mm-hmm. then you're left with complete relativism or at least some shade of relativism and it doesn't that, have to be complete. yeah and that decreases consistency and then over time that that paradigm will will by default be replaced mm-hmm. with some other set of core beliefs to which someone will then struggle to live up to and the cycle will continue with various bouts of decreased anxiety whenever we abandon a core belief and then eventual problems because the dissonance comes back because okay. whatever the new core belief is perhaps wasn't even well thought out. Yeah. And then we cycle. Ooh, what determines a core <laughs> belief then? Well, you do. Is that based on your experiences? It Well, it, it can be. Okay. Do you develop these in childhood? Like when, how do you know if something's a core belief? Because like, I believe in being kind to others. Like what, what is considered, a, is a core belief something that's consistent and constant? Well, ideally... Okay. Ideally it is. I mean, it's not for everyone though. Sometimes yeah. there aren't even particularly validly, I mean, val is not the right word, but there aren't consistently held core beliefs for individuals and it's just straight relativism. Yes. 
and it's whatever anybody wants. And to me, I can, I think there's a phrase that I use within like the religious community. I call it people who cherry pick, um, because they like to only follow or do certain things if it fits their lifestyle or what they want to do. And I feel like people do that to reduce the cognitive dissonance that they feel. Sure. Um, and so I see that all the time. And so I actually have another question about me not passing this exam because I totally feel like I had a core or I created a core belief in the last couple of years because I've been working on self-development and self-progress of, okay, I really need to solidify this core belief that I am smart and that I am competent. And so my question now is, does that cause cognitive dissonance? Because in this instance, I didn't pass said exam and I didn't feel smart. And so that therefore is a conflicting belief system because it's like, I'm smart and competent, but there's going to be instances that I'm not smart and I'm not competent a hundred percent of the time. So would you say that it's bad to have a core belief that could be potentially disrupted? What bad is, boy, it's tough to, it's tough to assign bad or good necessarily, right? But is it, if the question is, is it safer to have core beliefs that are based on immutable things? Yes. Then yes. Okay. But it doesn't mean that we can't have, you know, things on which we're, we're based that can change. Mm -hmm. But for example, if, if the, the primary core belief is that your worth is derived because you treat others well and that you love God and you love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a pretty safe place to be because you can control that. I see what you're saying. You, you're, you're in control of that. If it's, I'm smart and handsome and competent. Well, that might be okay, mm-hmm. but eventually you won't be. Yeah. Because there's always somebody smarter. There's always somebody more handsome and there's mm-hmm. always somebody more competent. Like it doesn't matter where you go. That's yeah. always going to be the case. And so some cognitive dissonance by default will, will be forced upon us at some point um, unless one continues to escalate their investment in that core belief to the point of the abandonment of other things, right? So, um, but even then, it's, often they're out of our control. Yeah. So with, for example, Susan, you would say like cognitive behavioral therapy of really kind of getting to the root of her core beliefs would be a good place to start to try and kind of help alleviate and mitigate some of that dissonance that she's feeling. Yeah. And, and strategically you would say, all right, well, Susan, what are your core beliefs? And Susan says, I'm a daughter of God. Mm -hmm. Susan says, I'm bound to to Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And so let's say hypothetically, Susan lists these things out. Yeah. Then, then ideally you would say, okay, well, let's not abandon your core beliefs, Susan. Let's find your competing core beliefs and help you root those out. Okay. Because then you have immutable, unchanging things that you have a history of positivity with. Mm -hmm. And we can help you reduce your dissonance and your anxiety by doing the mental work. Um, And, you know, that's an interesting concept. Um, Yeah. Because faith at its core is mental work. Absolutely. Um, if, if you don't mind, if I wax into the old Testament for a moment, go ahead, let's but do it. There, there's a, there's a story in the old Testament that I think that I misunderstood for a lot of years. Mm-hmm. And it was a story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. Yeah. And 
in my mind and in my my childhood i thought oh well well they didn't have to do it in the end he didn't actually have to sacrifice isaac mm-hmm. um but i think as as i get older i think that's i'm i was a little wrong about that because i i didn't stop to consider that a task is given to abraham and sarah the most horrendous thing we can imagine yes terrible and i never stopped to think about Abraham going and having to explain to Sarah what has to happen. I never stopped to think about the fact that Sarah was okay with that, or she came to terms with it, not not necessarily yeah, okay, yeah. but, that she, but that together the two of them had worked through this. I never stopped to think about all of the nights they didn't sleep as they, they used their left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex <laughs> to work through and iterate these straw cells. Um, and so I, I think that the process of faith occurred way before Abraham lifted that knife. By the time they got to that point, they had already experienced Isaac's death. They lived it. I understand what you're saying. Mentally, emotionally, they had completely come to terms. That's crazy. And had battled through this entire process. And so by the time the knife was lifted, that was perhaps the not the most intense portion of that story. I get what you're saying. And, I never thought about it from that perspective either. And so the, the faith occurred in their minds. Yes. It was lying in bed at night, iterating cells, and having to fight to not be dead in the in the gutter all alone, mm-hmm. but to to go into a mental battle, a spiritual mental battle. Mm-hmm to work through that and then reiterate oneself into a glorious place that's consistent with those tightly held core beliefs and not allow those straw people that we iterate to be defined by competing core beliefs. Interesting. And do you think that that's a big reason that we see so much more anxiety and depression and mental health issues is because people aren't even thinking about their core beliefs or because they're living in a state of cognitive dissonance all the time and we're not exactly establishing ourselves as individuals with a concrete sense of who we are and we're relying on a lot of external validation such as social media um especially for like the younger generation i see that the mental health crisis is insane um what's what's kind of that relevance in terms of um what we're seeing in the kids today well, I, you know, there, there's probably a lot of answers to that. And so maybe anything I'll say is not certainly meant to be some yeah. comprehensive, uh, you know, catch-all for everything. But, Absolutely. But certainly I think these things, these, these, these things play in mm-hmm. where the mantra of the world today is if something is difficult, abandon that core belief mm-hmm. and embrace the relativism of it mm-hmm. because it's about oneself. It's about one's own feelings it's about the way that 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 we feel internally that that's the main driver of the thing Um, and historically that's never been the way that these things have been taught from a religious perspective certainly Mm -hmm. i mean just looking at that story of abraham and sarah and isaac right it's yeah that's not what they would have done if they had a choice it's the process of of Mm self-denial it's the process of saying well this is the ideal now i'm not there and that's okay that's built. That's baked into the story, right? Yeah. Um, the the problems are inherent, um, hence the savior. Yeah. Um, and so 
but but when we when we intermix these multiple philosophies, this is when the resilience drops. I see. Because it's on this this more constant foundation that I can build, and it's a process of of eliminating these externalities that would that would disquiet me when when things come. Absolutely. And and that boy, that's just a core of of becoming something. I mean, everybody's experienced this process, right? The the, the mental battle is always the thing. Yeah. How many times do we lay on the couch, knowing something needs to happen? And the hardest thing is just simply standing up. That's actually so true. Because it, it's here, right? It's in the mind. And then when you finally get to whatever thing you were going to do, you go, I'm glad I came. Yeah, it's not that bad. Like, yeah, usually, oh, it's fine. Anyway, yeah, right? yeah, it, it depends, usually. right? But often, right? It's once you start moving, you're moving. Yes. Hence, faith becomes a principle of action. I like that. But the, the, the mental battle, and, and I think. This is, this is how, for me, a, a phrase that I wondered about for a long time came into focus. I, I've heard this phrase, the joy of daily repentance. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Like, what a thing. Um, I, I've, I've, I've experienced painful repentance. Yeah. Right? As, as, we, as we come to terms and as we, as we seek those things. But then, but then I thought, oh, my if, if repentance is, is a refinement process where I root out my competing core beliefs and I bring myself into proper alignment, oh, that brings joy. Yes. Anxiety drops. And, and, and you know, we're, we should caveat again, we're not talking about severe uh, mental illness. Absolutely. That, that has organic causes. That yep. we'll, we'll separate those things because they need to be separated. Um, but for most of us, when we're dealing with the day to day, you know, those those little things that would just kind of hinder us and cripple mm-hmm. us a little bit and kind of hold us back. And mm-hmm. um, there is joy in the process of the daily refinement of the way that we think and, and bringing it into alignment properly with with those things that we hold dear. Mm-hmm. And it's painful to have our incorrect beliefs exposed before us when we see the types of irrational thoughts they produce. Yeah. But it is a joyful experience to work through those, to root them out and and bring them into alignment so that we're a we're a consistent individual. Do you think that requires a certain level of self-awareness and prayer? Absolutely. Because I think without any of those things you're not going to even recognize like where the problem is stemming from and you mentioned repentance on the kind of flip side of that, what about forgiveness? Because if you, we talk about, and I think this is so prevalent in relationships, you can, we say you can forgive, but you won't ever forget. How, how does the process of forgiveness work from, um, I think both as a mental health and neuroscience perspective, because you obviously don't ever forget an experience that you went through, but how do you actually like forgive somebody for hurting you and try and train your brain to maybe not respond the same way that you did previously because it obviously is going to have walls up because say somebody hurt you and how do you learn to respond with love? Hmm. Okay, so there's a lot of ways to approach a question like that. Okay. In which way would you like me to approach that? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> from a from a neuroscience perspective, from a from a religious perspective? It's hard because I feel like people can benefit from both. I think it's, it's really great to apply to 
to both ends of the spectrum because I, th- I think it really is an irrefutable argument if you approach it from both sides because I think you have a very strong scientific community, but then you also have a very strong religious community. And I think if you can, you Try know, to bridge them. Somewhere? Yeah. Okay. I think that's a great way to well, be able to have these conversations. Have, uh, I, I would, I would ask for, for grace of those listening as I do this imperfectly yeah. in, in an attempt that's certainly going to fall short, I'm sure. Um, okay. So forgiveness. Um, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, the idea of, of, forgetting mm-hmm. because of the way that it encodes right yeah when, when we have these these difficult experiences and so uh, perhaps forgetting isn't necessarily the goal because we we don't necessarily want to not have learned yeah from experiences that that come our way but at the same time we don't want them to define us we don't want every situation we encounter from that point forward to be always viewed through the lens and paradigm of this this painful experience that maybe we've had, right? No, that'd be terrible. Um, but it happens, okay. right? Even subconsciously, those, those things can occur. Okay, so um, I mean that that going back to that same circuit of, of dopamine is an example. Um, you know, let, let's say from a you know some of the different therapies that might be employed to help somebody work through and deal with those um, are really designed to to help someone understand. Um, you know, why, why was the experience so upsetting? Now there, there's gradations of this. We could be talking about something that's horrendous where the, the answer to that is just abundantly obvious. Yeah. Right. Somebody, somebody hurt me deeply in some way. Well, that's, that, that might not be a necessary question. It's like, well, that's obvious. Why, okay. why that's so damaging. Uh, but sometimes it's, it's less. And sometimes you have to think, okay, well, what, what is it about that? You know, why was I so affected because someone embarrassed me publicly? Um, and, and, you know, there, there's the easy answer. Well, somebody embarrassed me publicly, but, but then one has to come back and say, okay, but why did that affect me so greatly mm-hmm. compared maybe to someone else that maybe experienced the same thing and it didn't affect them. And so it, it it's essential to understand again, why it is that we perceive the things that we encounter the way that we do Yeah. understand, is that consistent with with the things that I would believe that I should respond this way and what other beliefs must I hold again that, that would make me feel this way given this particular situation. Now, um, that's not necessarily talking about some horrendous traumatic experience someone's inflicted upon For us, sure. right? that's a little bit of a different paradigm, right? Um, and so, you know, in those more extreme cases, we have some of the circuits like that dopamine circuit where, um, we can um, attempt to engage in, in novel salient experiences to elicit dopamine release. Mm-hmm. And then we can attempt to, to work to replace some of those thoughts over time. Okay. But, but re- usually a, a process of therapy is designed to, to approach these things and mm-hmm. say, okay, understand what it is that you, what, what's happened, why it's affected you so greatly. Um, what are your core beliefs mm-hmm. about, what this is because if some senseless horrendous thing has occurred um do you have a core paradigm that would say that in the end it's going to be okay yeah um or perhaps we don't mm-hmm. and 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 we've got to find some some structure that we can we can um, some framework upon which we can we can build that to find a stability again um and then at that point we, we've got to just slowly go through and and work through 
the the now predictions we might make that that see the danger lurking around every corner yeah and you know that dopamine circuit is one that's utilized in therapy often there okay. there are techniques like emdr for example that place someone in a a novel and salient environment mm. and presumably trying to elicit a dopamine release so we can prime a circuit to change and learn and then contextualize it in some new positive way mm-hmm. and then we we continually go through that um but you know if we if we draw in um a spiritual side to that um some of these circuits if we look at some studies seem to be very involved in in spiritual experiences it's interesting and and they certainly would suggest at the very least that the way our minds were <clears throat> designed um they were very much designed to interact in a spiritual sense wow and you know when we say for example let's say you have a a a marriage Mm -hmm. and and you have trust in a marriage and we say that one one negative experience will have an outsized impact to the tune of maybe 10 positive experiences and so from a from a religious perspective we would say well a marriage is is uh, a man, a woman, and God. Mm-hmm. Well, one player in that trio is unchanging. Mm-hmm. One player in that trio um, is always going to respond the same way. And so those circuits that need consistency that can be disrupted with one one bad prediction oh. are very much designed to function in relationships that include at least a player that's unchangeable. That is a very, very good point. Critical piece. Absolutely. Because um, we, we tend as humans to fail one another. Inadvertently sometimes and intentionally others. Yeah. Um, but having a player in that relationship that won't fail you and that is unchangeable um, is a pretty, pretty important piece. At least the way our neuroarchitecture works. That's interesting that you said that. I've never heard. I, I'm like, I'm always looking for more evidence scientifically as much as we can that there is a higher power. Our brains were very much designed, if they're going to grow in a positive direction, to do it when they're facing an unchangeable being. Wow. Um, the, the opposite of that, it, it, it only takes one one interaction with someone who let you down mm-hmm. and, and, and you're going to need a lot more to, to make that, that work. And, and so from the context of God, you know, it's been said that uh, God can't lie. Mm-hmm. If God did lie, cease to be God. Yes. Um, in part because the process of God is the process of refinement of, of, of humans. Mm-hmm. It's the process of changing what we are into something more like God. Mm-hmm. And in order for that, at least from, from, from our brain's perspective, in order for that to occur, we have to be able to have faith and trust in something that is not going to let us down. Mm-hmm. Something on which we can fix that will continuously reward the faith that we place as we go forward. And yeah. now I've described that in a, in a perfect vacuum, right? Because we, you know, we can we can look at, at our own situations and it can be tainted by all the imperfect people that are, that are around us. Mm-hmm. But let's not conflate that with God for just a moment. Okay. Because it's easy to do that because we, we yeah. experience other humans all the time. 
And it's easy to misunderstand because we hold so many competing core beliefs that, that might elicit a misinterpretation of interactions with God. I've done that. I totally get what you're saying, 100%. I'm like, why would God do this to me? Yeah. Because like, of somebody else hurting me, right? Yeah. And, and the, the other one that's a pretty critical piece is, you know, it's difficult. To, we, we've talked about a lot of things in, in the idyllic state, right? In, yeah. in some, if we were perfect, then X, Y, and Z. We, we've talked about a lot of those. Um, but, but those shouldn't be demotivating things. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's like trying to cross the Atlantic Ocean on a ship. Um, you look at the North Star... And that North Star becomes kind of this, this perfect guiding light. You're not going to reach it right now. In fact, right now you've got scurvy and probably diarrhea. <laughs> and there's rats and, and the boat's a pretty rotten place to be sometimes, right? Yep. But every night you, you still look up at that North Star and you see this, this perfection. You see this thing you're holding up that says, well, that is perfect faith. This is what it would look like if... And when I get to this end point and the, the North star isn't shining down on you to destroy your confidence. It's to keep you facing the right direction so that by the time you, you, you reach the end of the journey and the scurvy's over yeah. and the diarrhea stops and the rats stop biting your feet at night and all of these horrendous things that we're experiencing along the journey is done well, there we are, right? We've, we've made it where we were intended to be. All the while, um, a savior was holding back the consequences of, of all of the mishaps and problems with the promise, the absolute promise that all of the ripples that affected all of us will be drawn back and, and, and it's going to be okay. Yeah, and what's also <laughs> consistent, to me, there's a peace in the reliability of that thing. You know, like knowing yeah. that that will always be there no matter what. And I think that that's something that kind of goes back to when I mentioned forgiveness is when you started explaining like that process, it seemed as though it was more you focusing on yourself versus going to that person and being like, okay, how can you make this right with me? You know, I want to feel like I've been righted by this person who's done me wrong. And I think so often we just want to get so angry at this person and we want them to do everything in their power to make it right. And I, I understand that to an extent, but it seemed as though you were mentioning there's so much work that you can do because that's what you can control and relying on something that's going to be a constant in your life that if you hold that as a core belief, that's going to allow you to actually change your response if that thing happens in the future, but also what allows you to truly heal. I've, I've gotten very little in, in life when, when my expectations are dependent on what I can get other people to do. That's a, that's a pretty, pretty shaky paradigm. People are unpredictable. Uh, not a great bet to, to bank our happiness on what we can get other people to do. Yeah, and when they let you down, it's the worst feeling in the world. Yeah. But hence again, I mean, I, I guess coming back to, I think everything you just said, right, is, um, you know, l- looking, looking to, the, to a, a greater source of healing um, than whether somebody would, would apologize. Yeah. Um, safer more controllable more predictable yeah more trustworthy absolutely more unchangeable and we want that apology i mean we're human and we do want that apology but do you feel like for your brain to actually change in its interpretation of this human being in the future to not see them as a threat and not see them as somebody who could hurt you 
Do you think it requires both? Do you think it requires that apology from that person and also the work that you need to put in to kind of change how you see them? Well, they might be a threat. It's not Ooh. a it's not a given that they're not a threat. Oh yeah, how do you know if somebody should stay in your life? You know, that's hard. Well, that's a that's a whole different thing. So you know, it's it's not a given. I mean, we don't need to stay around people that are placing us in danger. That's that's certainly not a requirement. In fact, it would, generally speaking, be unwise. What if there's someone who puts you in danger, but you also feel like they care about you or they have they say they have your best interest at heart because I see this all the time in like friendships and relationships of people kind of going through ups and downs like roller coasters because they, they see one thing and then they get another and vice versa. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. And it's like, to what point do you decide that, okay, this person is not meant to be in my life because they're causing me all these problems. But again, it's like, are they causing you the problem or is it really your just inconsistency mm-hmm. with the people that you're surrounding yourself with and your core beliefs, you know, that's kind of a hard, that's a hard place to be in. I'm, I'm always apprehensive to talk about things like this in generalizations. Right? Because, <laughs> I know. Yeah, it is I hard. Mean, the, the answer to a question like that might be get out of there immediately. Mm-hmm. Or the answer could be, well, they're right. And they're telling you something that, that will help you grow if you listen. Yeah. Just because somebody says something that's difficult to hear doesn't make it wrong. And at the same time, you might need to get out of there right now. Yeah. Because that's an unsafe place. And so it's it's very difficult in generalizations to, you know, never would want to, 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 to speak of it in terms that would encourage somebody to stay in an unsafe place. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it, well, well, at the same time, encouraging that, that look in the mirror occasionally to say, if all the people that love me are saying this hard thing to me, mm-hmm. maybe I'm off. Yeah. That's so hard to do. I think that's one of the hardest things to do. But at the end of the day, that's where you have to be able to rely on that constant. And I think that's totally where prayer comes in. And sometimes the man upstairs is kind of quiet. And that can be kind of annoying. But I always I always believe that there's a reason for that, you know. And it's kind of hard to interpret what that always means. But I I definitely agree that there's, there's not like a one-size-fits-all. It is definitely kind of a generalized question. So Yeah, tough one. Yeah. Um, I do have another question. So, and I don't know if there's any scientific explanations for this that can kind of bridge the gap between religion and science, but I'm just so hard pressed to believe that we are all just cells and our brain is just all these neurons firing because we might biologically be made up of the same things, but like you are you and I am me. And I think that's what we would all collectively understand colloquially in America to be the soul. Is there anything that we can see that either, not, I don't know, I don't want to say proves that we have a soul, but we're all so different, yet biologically on paper we look the same. Is there anything that we can see that shows that there's more to us than just cells? Well, it, it, it seems fundamentally clear that, that there's a good portion of, of who we are that we can't measure at all with our current set of of instruments i mean for example um so you you studied um ssris uh-huh okay so what do ssris do well considering i just got tested on these on friday so <laughs> <laughs> selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor so it prevents the reuptake of serotonin in the neuronal synapse and they give that for like anxiety and depression okay so we 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 would prescribe those to 
to improve someone's mood and outlook and yeah and, to help and, them and be happier things, right? essentially happier okay so increasing the amount of serotonin present in a synaptic cleft right between two neurons mm -hmm. what does that have to do with joy and happiness I have no idea. I don't think anybody really does. Oh, okay. I mean, we. This is what I'm getting at, right? Is is uh, we have these direct evidences. We can say, oh, well, let's scan someone's brain when they say they're feeling joyful, mm -hmm. and we can find patterns of brain regions that would be excited when somebody experiences different types of things, and and if you if you take that down to the cellular level, we would say, well, this nerve um, transmits a chemical to this nerve, and and that little chemical sits on a receptor on the second nerve and it activates it. But, I mean, a most fundamental question would be why does activating that receptor elicit an emotion? Yeah. And the truth is nobody knows the answer to that question. Okay. We have simply indirect evidence of saying, well, this is what occurs when someone says they feel these things. And and so there there's it seems so clear that there are huge parts of what's happening in the mind um, that we simply don't understand. And Things so, yeah. that we, we just can't and haven't measured. We do a very good job of measuring the brain and we really don't have phenomenal tools, in my opinion, to measure the mind and emotions and, and some of these most basic things. We, we've, we really have tools to understand what's happening within the brain. But, you know, and so the, the idea that we would have a spirit, right, a soul, uh, um, those are things that seem to be of the mind. Yeah. And we don't have tools to measure those things. And does it seem abundantly clear that that exists? Well, something does. Yeah. At least something way beyond what we can measure. So science, okay, so there's definitely questions about aspects of the brain that science just can't answer. Well, certainly, I mean, I mean, what, what, it, for all the things we know of neuroscience, which I believe the, the latest I've seen, the it's the fastest growing field in in uh, biological science, right? More more I papers are published in this field, and for all of the this exponential growth in knowledge, um, no one can explain joy. No one can explain sadness. We don't even know why an antidepressive works. We just have evidence that it does. Um, so, That's so crazy I mean, to me. So the the idea that that we would we would suggest that 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 the science of the brain would would somehow disprove this or that. I mean, we're so far off from understanding some of those basic things that that would be a a particularly hubristic stance to take. Okay, See, I understand what that, you're saying. That, that would seem so much akin to hundreds of years ago being very confident the earth was flat. Uh-huh. Um, because that's what the science seemed to demonstrate, right? Mm -hmm. Well, there, there's there's things to be measured that we haven't even invented tools to conceive of yet. Um, and so, I mean, the idea of, of, of you know, the, the soul seems, I mean, it certainly scientifically would be within, within the realm of like, yeah, something's there. Well, yeah, because I remember like back in the day I was trying to find like evidence for having a spirit and like when people would die, it's like, would they weigh a little less or what about these out-of-body experiences when people are on the table and they like die and they come back? 
Um, what are your thoughts on like stories like that? Do you feel like there's definite insight to be taken into consideration from those encounters? I mean, the, the trouble is it, it seems that we're just ill-equipped to, to be measuring those things. Okay. And it, it's difficult to make, you know, any, any type of hard argument based upon, um, you know, there, there, there's a million arguments to be made and the most potent of them um, are going to be the result of people um, living certain ways and experiencing things. But uh, we, we don't have the tools to, to, to run some of the experiments that we might want, I think. Okay, cool. I was just curious because I've always heard of those like out-of-body experiences and I was like, how real is that? Is it actually legit? Is it reliable? I don't know if that's anything that the medical community would kind of stand on to say, yeah, we have people who have had this happen and because of that, we can stand on this and say that we believe that there is something else happening or can it be explained by chemicals? I don't know. And that's what's yeah. hard. Much more to the story. Yeah. So my last question is um, biohacking. What do you think are things that people could do now to help their brain function most optimally or to either learn better or just in terms of learning how to train your brain to be the best it can be? Because we talk about biohacking all the time. Like I know supplements and peptides are a big thing right now. Um, what what is there kind of in terms of biohacking for the brain? Mm. Um, maybe I'll, okay. So I'll, I'll give my, what I think might be a, a, on the higher on the list of the most potent um, yields that one could have. Okay. Um, you know, times were people used to spend an hour a night sitting on the patio mm -hmm. and, and they would just be still. Um, maybe I'll tell you a, a story of a, of a, of a, of a, of an individual that, that I'd worked with years and years ago. Um, this particular person really struggled with, um, all kinds of gastrointestinal issues and just a variety of, of, of different things. And as, as I met with them, it became abundantly clear that their mind was going a billion places a minute, Oh wow! just worried and anxious and just all over the place. And if, if you left them alone for, for 10 seconds where they weren't actively engaged, their mind would revert to everything in the world they worried about. And I've got this and the to-do list and all the, just very all over the place. Mm -hmm. And they, they were taking all kinds of medications and being treated by every specialist known to, to humankind. And, and in the end, what helped them move forward and, and help some of these problems go away was they started to spend several minutes every night where they would they had gathered some rocks out of their garden, placed them in a little box, uh -huh. and placed it on their nightstand. And they would just sit staring at these rocks and try to think about nothing except the rocks. And they found that they couldn't do it for more than about two seconds. Their mind would instantly go back to whatever it is that they were worried about. Yeah, that sounds like impossible. Very difficult, right? Well, as, as weeks went by and, and, and then some months went by, they were able to work up to where they could sit for five minutes and actually think about the rocks. They started to gain a little control over their own mind. Mm. 
and they could start to decide what they wanted to think about. Instead of being controlled by their thoughts, the thoughts started to become something they could use to accomplish good and to solve problems. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, if, if, if I suppose if there were, if there were one thing um, that, that I think would be, I mean, there's a lot of things, but, but I think this is probably particularly potent in this day and age. Um, cell phones, notifications, social media. Always. These things are destroyers of peace. And the ability to shut things down mm-hmm. and be still and be quiet and have those moments where we practice not letting our thoughts control us, mm-hmm. but to practice the skill of being able to target our own mind and our own thoughts on something, I think is a particularly important skill set that because of the, the, the smartphones is lost. Yeah. Would you call that essentially like meditation? Meditation, pondering, mm-hmm. prayer. Yeah. Um, any of these could be words one, one might describe, but the targeted use of the mind. You know, meditation generally begins with trying to get everything out of the mind. Yeah, and it's so much easier said than done. So much easier. And and I would say, um, personally, that, that a next step would be trying to focus one's mind on a particular thing. I see. Um, so that we're, we're, we're actively using our faculties to focus on something that we choose to think about yeah as opposed to but sometimes it's an iterative thing right we we have to we start somewhere and we we kind of move up Mm -hmm. Uh, we start by being still and then we then we practice focusing studying pondering a particular thing deeply Um, you find some of those those great moments of spiritual communion and enlightenment come Mm -hmm. when there's targeted pondering that occurs do we see can we see like I don't know if anybody's ever done this, but the the neuroactivity does it change when somebody's in that state? Does there there are studies that have that have looked at some of those things before? The brain is um, certainly wired to, to to change depending on obviously how we're how we're focused and how we're thinking. Yeah, do you think that you are a like observer of your thoughts? Do you think having that opinion? or perspective helps you control them if you're kind of like a spectator versus them controlling you? That's an interesting question. Um, I mean, it certainly seems to me that there's, it's a skill set to be developed. Absolutely. Yeah, it really is. And it it takes pretty consistent practice and and targeted time to be able to, to still one's life and mind and shut down distractions and, and just, be still, be yeah. quiet. Um, even potent things can be lost in the, the chaos of our minds. Yeah, it's so true though. I mean, I was just like reading from, he's actually another neuroscientist, uh, Daniel Levithan or something. And he was saying that like, we consume on average, like 75 newspapers worth of information every single day just coming in like that we're not even reading or necessarily consciously aware of 
And it's like there is so much all the time. And I do think in America, too, because we're like such a fast paced society, work, work, work. It's very easy to get caught up in feeling like you have to be doing something all the time or else you're falling behind. And I actually did like a whole podcast episode on this of like your task negative state of being able to just chill. And I've been trying to meditate a lot more. And I did not realize it was going to be so hard because I just start stripping. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have to watch these videos. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have to do this quiz. And it's so hard. But I read this quote from I'm, I'm I don't even know how to pronounce his name, but it was saying that peace is happiness at rest and happiness is peace in motion. And I love that because I'm like, I just want to feel at peace. And I think that you brought up so many points today in this conversation that I think I've thought about, but I didn't actually fully understand. And I really, really like how you talked about how you can have two sets of beliefs, right? Your core beliefs and then other ones that are just kind of there and how those are what happen to be competing. And I think that is so important, especially for like young women um, in this younger age. Like we, I think that, I mean, I speak in being in this generation that, you know, especially in like the dating world, it can be really, really hard to not let like your worth be determined by what a boy thinks of you. And it's really stupid because when you sit there and you think about it, you're like, I would never do that. But then it hurts your feelings when they choose somebody else or, you know, you don't feel like they want to date you or whatever. And so I, I think that's so prevalent. And I think mm-hmm. that worth being derived from God is so, so important. And there was a period in my life that I felt very disconnected from God and I went through like a faith crisis and I feel like I'm still kind of rebuilding that right now. And it's been a very interesting journey because I don't place as much of my worth on things that are so variable or I'm trying to redirect that towards things that are constant and towards somebody that I know loves me for who I am, even when my hair is a disaster or I didn't do as good on an exam as I wanted to. And I'm, I'm so glad that, you know, there's people that want to talk about this because I think it's, it's so important. So thank you. It kind of gets to that, that core of that. There's a term thrown around perfectionism. Yup. <laughs> right. That, yep. which really at its core is, is a belief that we'll save ourselves through our own actions and our performance. I never thought about it like that. Which is pretty directly in, in competition with the concept that I have a savior. Yes. And I think a lot of that stems from I have to be perfect because I, I need other people to think that I'm perfect. Yeah. And that's so true. And that goes back to, well, is that core belief rooted in you placing your worth on an existential yeah. thing like an individual? Do I have faith in, in me? Do I have faith in others? Do I have faith in God? Yeah. You know, is it perfectionism at, at its core, right, is is very, very opposite of the concept that, that it's faith in a savior. And God's perfect. So it's like you, you want to try your best to be like them, but mm. it's it's a different type of perfectionism because I think the perfectionism we see is like climbing the corporate ladder and like being the best person that you can be for like showing face and whatnot. So I yeah. think there's definitely a differentiation there. So I, I definitely agree in that aspect for sure. Yeah. But I feel like we got so many topics in today that I wanted to talk about. I appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. My pleasure. Chatting about it. It makes me so happy that there are people willing to have these conversations. So 
thank you. I hope you guys liked this and were able to learn a couple different things today. Again, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram. You can go on my page or stand firm. We're going to at stand firm with Eden, and we would love to answer any other questions that you may have. And again, this is Dr. Bills. Thank you so much for coming on today. I appreciate it. My pleasure.